Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Aaron Rubin, and if you're not familiar with Aaron, Aaron is a producer, engineer, mixer, songwriter. He's worked with artists such as Blink-182, Angels and Airwaves, his brother Elon Rubin, The New Regime, Illenium, Frank Turner, and a whole bunch more. And in today's episode, this was a really exciting one. We're recording this episode on November 9th, 2023. And last month, the newest Blink-182 record came out, which Aaron worked on. He got credits as a co-producer, as a writer. He engineered on it as well. And I got to say, I'm a really big fan of this record. And I just happened to reach out to Aaron just to compliment him for a job well done on the record. Uh, you know, like I said, I really enjoy it. And uh, he was nice enough to come on the podcast as well, which was awesome. So yeah, I was super, super stoked to have him on the podcast and to learn more about, you know, working with a band like Blink and... He's got a long history of working with Tom DeLong, the guitarist and singer from that band. Uh, he's worked with him on all of his other projects. But I was really interested in learning more about this new Blink record. And, you know, this record is number one on the charts right now. It's absolutely crushing it. And for people who aren't familiar with the circumstances around this record, it was a band that had basically kind of split up and then... Uh, reformed with different members and then now Tom DeLong is back in the band and so there's a lot of like story behind how this record came to be and I'm not going to deny it like Blink is a band that I absolutely love and so when a new record comes out by that band with all the original members I was really stoked to hear it and I just think Aaron did an amazing job so yeah it was really cool to learn what went into making this record and get some insight into some of the production side of it some of the writing side of it uh, some of the technical stuff and Aaron is just a completely open book. He's a straight shooter. And I think you're going to learn a lot in this episode. And uh, it's funny, half, about three quarters of the way through this episode, I thought that, you know, let's wrap up the interview. I don't want to take up more of his time, but Aaron was really gracious. And uh, him and I just ended up shooting this shit for like another half hour. And it was awesome. I thought we covered some really cool topics. And he was just like, yeah, man, like just keep that part of the conversation in. That's totally cool. Um, and so I think if you're a Blink-182 fan, you're going to really love this episode because you're going to learn a lot about you know, working with that band and get some insight. He even addresses some conspiracy theories that are floating around on the internet regarding the album right now. So uh, cool to hear about that. But yeah, this is definitely a really fun episode and I'm excited for you to dig in. So with that said, let's get into it. Aaron Rubin, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. What's going on, dude? Thank you for having me. For people who might not be familiar with you and who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into all this stuff, can you give us that background? Yeah, I am a producer, engineer, mixer, songwriter in San Diego. I worked with uh, such bands as Blink-182, Angels and Airwaves, um, The New Regime, Night Riots, done some stuff with Frank Turner, Elenium, a bunch of other stuff. And yeah, I'm just living life keeping busy and doing what I love. Right on, man. You come from a pretty musical family from my understanding too, right? Yes. I have a uh, little brother who is a drummer. His name is Ilan Rubin and he plays for 
Nine Inch Nails. He's play plays for Angels and Airwaves. He's played for Paramore in the past and a bunch of other stuff. Right now he's been out with Danny Elfman. Um, so yeah, he's my little brother and I actually used to manage him as well. We were in bands together and then um, he, got, he joined a, a bigger band and I started managing him because I was also managing some other bands at that time. And it probably wasn't in a, until about COVID that I just quit management and just went full time into production, mixing, engineering and all that fun stuff. Nice. Were you always kind of dabbling in the production side of things? Yeah, I was, when I was in bands, I was always the guy hovering over the engineer, asking him questions, you know, what mic is that? What was that plugged into? What, you know, why are you doing that? Um, and then um, when my, our last band broke up, that was kind of like a, let's figure things out. And at that point, I was kind of like, if I never played on stage ever again, like I wasn't going to be bummed. Um, but the one thing that I probably would miss would be writing and, you know, the whole recording process. So I ended up getting like a, an M box at the time. And then that was like in 2000, I don't know, five or six. And, um, kind of just wanted to, you know, paint quote unquote, Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, something that I'd be able to do that'd be a creative outlet, a hobby, and, you know, express myself without the intention of anybody ever hearing anything I worked on or whatever. And then, you know, as time progressed, um, Elon actually asked me, like, hey, what do we need to record, like, a full record here, you know, in what was, you know, my parents' um, garage because he was still living with them. And this was like in 2008, so he would have been about, I don't know, 20 maybe. And so, you know, I kind of made a list for him. And he went out and bought, you know, a few mic pre's and I had this old Yamaha AW4416 which I ended up using for more pre's, like for drums and whatnot, and then would like route everything in. Actually, no, at that point, we also bought the Digio too. So that's what it was. So I had everything kind of like line in from the Yamaha. I don't know how I had it, honestly. I I don't even remember anymore, but we made a record and it was like, all right, we're off to the races. We're figuring this out. Like, it wasn't like, man, I should probably learn how to do stuff. Like, it was just kind of like, figure it out. Eyeball stuff, set up the drums. Like, does it sound good? Sounds good to me. All right, let's track. Like, guitars. And I mean, when we're doing guitars, we're I'm doing like multi-amp stuff. So it's like, I don't know. I go back. And, I go back and listen to that record. I'm just like, I can't believe that this thing sounds as good, and I had no idea what I was doing. 
<laughs> Sometimes there's that like that ignorance of the process is actually a good thing because it forces you to like really use your ears and just trust those, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, then people, other clients of mine that I was managing heard that and were like, hey, well, you know, we got to record this song for this and hey, we want to record a record. And it's like, okay, well, I started making those records. And then people outside of my like little client roster started hearing my stuff and, you know, asking me to do a song here or there, mix some stuff. And, you know, my hobby became a second income. And it was cool. It was very organic and it was kind of like the universe pushing <laughs> me in a direction. And I feel very fortunate that all that stuff kind of happened because a lot of people go through life and they don't know what they want to do. They don't have the, you know, maybe the network or support or all sorts of different things. So the fact that it was able to just kind of, you know, make itself appear in front of me and be something was like, all right, I'm going to kind of follow the path and still do both things, management, of which I loved management because I was always that dork in the band who was, you know, talking with the promoters, the labels yeah, and whatnot. So, but, you know, then COVID hits and your hands are tied behind your back in terms of what you can do management-wise for artists because touring's shut down, radio's shut down, like, it's, labels are pretty much shut down, everybody's working from home, nobody knows, can't plan, like, beyond two weeks. But that's when recording started going, like, nuts because everybody was home and just wanted to record and create and make stuff so that became an incredibly busy time for me yeah. was the pandemic and at that point I was like you know what if I'm going to be sitting in front of a computer all day I'd rather be making stuff and being artistic Fair. as opposed to groveling and asking people for put a band on tour or you know, labels to listen to something and, you know, yeah. all that fun stuff. So how did you like learn the engineering side of things then? Like, it sounds like you guys were just kind of doing it on your own or did you have any other like training at all of some sort or? I didn't really have training, but I, I would get, I would look up stuff like crazy. Anything I would read had to do with recording. Anything I watched had to do with recording, whether it was on YouTube or um, obviously stuff like Mix with the Masters and Pure Mix wasn't like out yet, but that then came later. And then that was like a huge thing. Uh, one of my good friends, Joe Marlette, um, he is a producer, engineer, mixer as well. And I would literally just ask like, or if he'd be doing a session in town, I'd just roll in and hang out and just kind of observe and kind of see what he was using, ask questions. If I was came to a point where I was stumped on something in Pro Tools or something's not sounding right, you know, he was always there to kind of, you know, 
mentor in a way. Call him my Obi One. <laughs> um, and yeah, I so I had that, but honestly, it was just like one of those things. It's like when you're really into a hobby, it's like you want all the information. So it was whatever I can get my hands on on the internet, whether it was like Mix Online or the EQ Mag or Sound on Sound. It's like I was always researching, always trying new things. And um, because we had the gear at at the studio that Milan and I put together, there was a lot of trial and error and just figuring things out. And, mm-hmm. you know, you start adding little pieces to the puzzle like compressors and all sorts of stuff and other plugins that weren't the ones that came with Pro Tools and you kind of just start messing around and hearing stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, you guys were, you guys were just kind of doing it like DIY and, and picking up the skills as you went along. And obviously, um, you know, it sounds like you got to a point where people were then started to ask you to work on projects. So you're getting that experience and, you know, yeah. that's, that's obviously going to make you stronger. Um, so I'm curious to know, like, you know, you, you had the management side of things for so long and then you got into the engineering side of things. Um, and, and like you said, like it was only around COVID. So it's only been a few years that you've been kind of like all in on this from the sounds of it. Um, yeah. So as far as like, taking your career, your career to where it is now and um, you know, some of the artists that you've worked with, like what, what was it that you think made that transition happen as quick as it did? Cause there's some people that are at this forever and like never get to work with artists at the, at the caliber that you're at. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm fortunate, but I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to have a broad network. And a lot of that did come from management. Cause I, knew a lot of people mm-hmm. um but so i would say that probably like the first record i ever put out was like in 2008 and that was that first new regime record in about 2012 ilan had joined um he joined uh angels and airwaves and he, you know, I told them they they had just finished. They were he joined the band, but they were about to release uh, "Love Part Two, which was their fourth record. Elon had nothing to do with the record. He literally came in after the fact. The drummer ended up quitting a month before the release. Tom was also out with Blink and all this stuff. And um, so when Elon joined the band, I said, "Hey, why don't?" you get two tracks and do some sort of like remix or reimagination of these songs that they can, you know, that angels and arrows can give out for free. And, but it'll still kind of be like your, your, Hey guys, I'm the new drummer. Check me out. Hmm. This is what I can bring to the table. And we, got through two of them and Tom loved them. He was like, this is so cool. It's so different. It's amazing. He's like, you guys got to do more, Hmm. do more of them, whatever tracks you guys want. I'll get you guys. And, um, also they had just put out their love movie. 
So they had like kind of score pieces, but I don't think that they ever released the score. So he was like, why don't you pick a few of the score pieces? Or he, I think he picked out like two, three of the score pieces. He's like, why don't you take these and just elaborate on them? So Elon just went and almost like elongated these score pieces and made more out of them. Interesting. And we put all of that stuff together and Tom told Elon, Hey, who, who'd, who'd you do this stuff with? Cause it sounds great. He's like, did you engineer mix it like everything or what? He's like, no, that was my brother, Aaron. He goes, Oh shit. He's like, so he's also a producer and this is stuff. He goes, yeah, he's done all of my stuff. And that was that. After about two, three weeks after that, Tom calls Ulan and says, hey, my engineer, Critter, who had been with Tom since the first day, uh, Angels and Airwaves record, he's like, he passed away completely unexpected, and we have this studio, and we're going to need to get an engineer in there or something, and do you know anybody? And so Elon was threw my name in the hat and I think it was maybe like three to five days later, we were in the studio already like working on stuff. Amazing. So that was a big leap from working on, you know, stuff that's kind of like within your little network and then moving on to something that's big, that's, gonna get heard yeah for sure but obviously like you know i think i think that's a pretty smart way that you guys approached it of like let's just let's just prove our our worth here our value and like you know do yeah. something cool and that obviously spoke for itself and that, that's yeah. why you got the gig right yeah that's that's one thing that i've always been 100 percent all about is that if you have to work for free sometimes or you have to do something to prove yourself, do a mix on spec, you know, record a song on spec. Take the opportunity and do it. Because, or offer the opportunity. Hey, let me mix your song. If you don't like it, no problem. If you like it and you're going to use it, you can pay me. Yeah. It, it, no one loses there. Yeah, it's so simple. <laughs> yeah, it's super simple. And it's just, you have to be able to prove yourself on any given moment. And it doesn't matter how many records you've done or how great you think you are. There's always another op- opportunity out there. And if you don't go for it or take advantage with whatever tools you have, and in this case, my tool was man i was on the more on more so on the management side but it was fun for me too i like enjoyed opening up someone else's sessions and just kind of seeing all their tracking and what stuff sounded like when it wasn't mixed mm-hmm. you know like what the processing was like and going i'm not too far off here like because I've, I've, because of the whole management being the first thing I did and recording being the hobby, there's always been this like imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think hey, people that have been doing it full time still have that, you know. 
Yeah, but it was never anything I ever intended to do in life. Like if somebody told me, you're going to be a producer, engineer, mixer, I'd be like, yeah, that's my dream, but it's not going to happen. I didn't go to school. I haven't worked in the studio. I haven't put in my 10,000 hours, but after 10 years, your 10,000 hours are definitely there, especially if you're making that effort and you're constantly learning and taking in all of this information all the time. And I couldn't, there was a point where I was just like, come on, somebody put out something so I can learn something new. Cause I've just <laughs> been all over the internet, you know, what, you know, message boards, gear sluts, like you name it. It was like, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, I, yeah, obviously. Yeah. You, you, you took advantage of those opportunities or you created them for yourself, which I think is massive. And that's something a lot of people are like, yeah, a lot of people are reluctant to do it. And it's it's kind of stupid to do it that way because it's like, so what? It costs you a little bit of time. But then you now have a career, like a long career out of this one opportunity that went somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, that's all it takes. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's making the opportunity. It's taking advantage of the opportunity. And then it's being there, being the best that you could possibly be so that, you're not expendable or replaceable. Mm-hmm. Like you cement yourself in people's lives. And one thing I was very fortunate about was that I was not relying solely on production to make my full income. You know, I was still doing the management and, and other stuff. So because of that, I was able to really cultivate the relationships and I didn't have to go out and do projects just to make money and not be available Mm -hmm. to Tom or to Elon when they wanted to be making stuff. So for a long time, it wasn't about the quantity of gigs that I had or albums I was working on. It was the quality of them. And somehow between the two of them, I've stayed busy for the last 10 years. That's amazing. And there aren't a ton of people that could say that between two artists, they've got, (laughs) they're able to stay busy for 10 years, make money and, you know, make something of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. It's, it's a, I think it's a pretty rare thing, but Obviously, again, like like you said, like you know, you 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 were the kind of guy who was just always pushing yourself to get better and better, and 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 it sounds like you still, and it sounds like you still are. So that's to this that's, day, I'm still nerding out on stuff. Yeah, so that's obviously the reason why you've had that long career, like you know, working with or you've been working with these artists for the long period of time. Obviously, like your brother, you guess brothers, but like someone like Tom, for example, like you know, who has such a history of working with lots of other big producers and stuff like that. Like you know, who, who knows? That, he might, he might want to move around, but like no, you've proven your value, and that, that's why you stuck with him, and why I feel like you're continuing to work together. Yeah. We, we, we've, we've developed a really great relationship and an even greater working relationship in terms that, you know, he calls it a, a partnership. Anything that, that has to do with music creation, I've been a part of for, you know, with him for the last 10 plus years. And whether it's 
an Angels and Airwaves record, a solo record, scoring for a TV show or for a movie, or even weird stuff like a little presentation that he has to make and he wants a little bit of music <laughs> for that presentation. <laughs> like we've always, we, we just work very well and we have a lot of the same musical taste. And so when he references stuff, I know what he's talking about. And it's the same thing with Ilan. I mean, I know his entire musical catalog of what he loves and what he's always listening to and, and whatnot. And it gets to the point where I already know based off of what he's playing, what he wants the sound to be like as it's just kind of that thing. So when you start (laughs) developing those relationships with people, like it's a completely valuable tool to not have to sit there and explain or show or Mm -hmm. have people understand. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool. I, I love that you described it, or that Tom describes it as a partnership. I think that's such a, a yeah. really cool relationship to have. Um, and, and it kind of leads me to a question that I was curious about. Like, you know, with the the latest Blink record that just came out, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed right away was that you're credited as a co-writer on some of these tracks. And, yeah. you know, I was curious to dive into that a little bit because, you know, the band, the band has like, historically been kind of a, written as a three piece. And I know that they did some records where they did co-write with other people, but uh, for the most part, it's been the three guys. Um, and so I'm curious to know like how the topic of co-writing came into play and like how you got into that with the band. Like I'm assuming just, you know, by through your partnership with Tom and like constantly working with each other, he's trusted you as a, as a, someone who can, who can provide really good input, but you know, was, yeah. that, was that what it was? Well, what, what started happening was, so the first, the the first Angels and Airwaves record, I was pretty much a producer engineer, and I would make suggestions and comments like a traditional producer would have back in the mm-hmm. day. And my focus wasn't really on songwriting, but you go back and you start listening to things, and you're like, I kind of was songwriting. I did that or I played that or I came up with this part. Um, And then we did an EP after that. And there's probably about one song there where it was like, probably had more hand in writing, but again, I wasn't thinking about songwriting. The next EP was literally me and Tom and Lon was out on tour with nine inch nails and he wasn't even a part of that album musically he came in on a week off and in half a day recorded drums for for the album which was pretty much the last thing that we did for that record was the drums and at that point i was like i'm doing a lot of writing here so when we started working on the uh album life forms for um angels and airwaves Tom was very open about it. He's like, you know, you do play a big role in the songwriting of these songs. Like, I think that, you know, you should take some publishing on, on the stuff. And, you know, at that point, they'd, they'd been splitting things, you know, 50-50, Lon and Tom. So 
for this record, what ended up happening was I pretty much cut, got cut in 15% across the board on everything. And so that was kind of my first quote unquote taste into publishing. Yeah. And, you know, taking credit for songwriting because I've always seen songwriting being one of those things for a producer. I am not one of those guys that goes out on songwriting sessions and mm-hmm. although I have in the past couple months, but, um, but I've already, I've always seen it, but, but this day and age, it's like the songwriting game is so out there and everybody's all about songwriters and songwriters. So blink traditionally wasn't into songwriters it wasn't until maybe the last two records of which tom wasn't a part of Mm -hmm. um that they started bringing in songwriters and that probably had to do more with uh the producers they were working with which is like john feldman who loves bringing in anybody he can into the room and write songs and it's this big you know he's a songwriter (laughs) yeah and he he himself is a songwriter as well um so when we started work on this record, it was one of these situations where you have three guys. There were, when we started, there were three engineers. Each guy had their own engineer. They would get together, write a couple of songs, do some basic tracking, and then everybody would go to their prospective studios and kind of work on their parts and start recording their parts. Um, so for this particular record, I was hired as just an engineer. Of course, I can't just engineer <laughs> with Tom because we, we're just in a routine. Like we get together and he'll have an idea and I'll be like, oh, that's cool. Hold on. Let me, let me grab a bass really quick and start putting all these chords under it. And oh, and th- and then say, oh, it'd be great if we went into this part. He's like, oh, that's rad. That I think a melody like this over... So it's, it just starts snowballing. It was just kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, let's just see where things end up. Like, you do you. If you get credit for songwriting, awesome. If you get credit for a co-production, awesome. If you don't, who cares? You're, you just engineered what's going to be a it, massive yeah. record. You know, so again, that goes into the, what I, what I mentioned earlier that you just got to do your best work always and be ready to give the ideas to take things to the next level not just sit on your hands because, well, I'm just an engineer. I'm not getting paid to do X, Y, and Z. So for sure, you figure yeah. it out. So all of these things, it was, it wasn't until the album was done that, you know, I had a conversation with Tom and said, Hey, you know, do you think I brought enough to the table in terms of songwriting to ask for a, you know, small portion or credit or whatever. Also, also same thing with producing, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. Do you think I can get co-producer on a few of these songs that I actually 
maybe that, most of the songs that I got co-producer credit on are songs that started at Tom's and later went to the other guys. Gotcha. And some of them changed a lot. Some of them changed not at all. So I kind of felt like the direction of where the song went merited some sort of co-producer um, credit. And the band were very gracious and were like, sure, here, you know, get, you get, you'll get your credit and you'll get your co-production credit. And I love that. It's absolutely amazing and jarring to see your name <laughs> on this massive record that's on the TV. Like my girls will sit there watching Apple music, like the lyrics going up. And then all of a sudden at the end, my name pops up and they're like, Oh my God, it's your name. <laughs> you know, they get all stoked and, and whatnot. And, you know, for me actually being a fan of that band before I even knew, knew Tom or, yeah. Anything. It was it's like a really cool full circle music thing. Like I love that. Yeah. I think it's yeah, again, just kind of showing, you know, that example of like you creating opportunities. And and you know, I think some people would be like shitting their pants to ask for credits for, you know. But at the same time, it's like you did you you have that relationship with with Tom and you you put in that effort and you you know, uh Obviously, you guys have that relationship where you can talk openly about that stuff, and and it works out. And uh, yeah, and 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 that was one of the biggest things that surprised me about Tom when we first met. Is the very first session. I don't know what it was. It may have been like the first take of something that we did. He was like, "What do you think about that?" That's cool. asking me my opinion. And I'm a very opinionated, opinionated person. <laughs> and I also can't, I'm also not a, a great liar where it's like, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. Let's do it again. <laughs> you know, I, I, to my detriment or my, or, or not to my detriment, I can sit there and, give an opinion and also back it up with an idea. Yeah. Cause I'm constantly hearing stuff in my head mm -hmm. and the fact that a, he cared to ask and B took the opinion and took my idea right then and there was like, that's amazing to me. Yeah. That's this guy so cool. sold like 30 million records and I've sold what a thousand tops <laughs> like collectively. <laughs> and, and so that to me was a very eye opening um, situation. And it, it was also what I think led to things kind of being very cool between us because he knew, I think right away that I wasn't a yes man and a bullshitter and whatever doing whatever it takes mm -hmm. to like hang to hang on to the job. Yeah. You know, and then we've gotten into it, like in terms of like not agreeing on a certain thing. 
And at that point, in those situations, just like with any artist, like they have the final say. Of course. Yeah. And I've been an artist, so I get that. And I've had fights with a producer, you know, and it's like, end of the day, like, I'll take the hit if it's not the the direction. So mm-hmm. it's always like, it's your name that's going out on it, and it's your song, and I want you to be stoked on it. So if my idea doesn't make it, that's for me to sulk about. And a lot of the times you forget what your idea even was and you listen to whatever decision was made and you go, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Obviously like he, he trusted you as a producer and you know, that that's a, a huge compliment to, you know, considering like, it, you know, in my, in my opinion, my favorite all time producer is Jerry Finn and, yeah. you know, and, and arguably I think he like, you know, those were the best records that Blink made, you know, like were the early Jerry Finn records. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting to like to see like people coming into to projects like working with Blink now. Um, I know like even Travis was talking about like, you know, they have such huge admiration for, for Jerry and their time working with him. And Travis had even said that like throughout this whole process, he was always asking himself like, what would Jerry do? Um, and I'm curious to know, like you came into working with Tom as a fan of their band and having listened to those records, did you feel like with this record you had to like honor Jerry's legacy in the album at all? Or like, or was that like a thought for you throughout this process? It, it, it wasn't an outright thought like, oh, I'm going to do this for Jerry. I, yeah. you know, unfortunately I never got to meet Jerry, mm-hmm. but I was a massive fan of his work, not just with Blink, but the Sparta record that he did. And there were, he mixed a living end record that I really liked and, there's just a ton of stuff that I, I think he was a big part of me really wanting to get into the production side of things. Cause I think it was the first time that I heard something that was attainable in terms of music that I could write sound great. Mm-hmm. You know, before then the stuff that sounded great, was not necessarily the stuff that A, you could write, or B, wanted to write. Fair. But then you start going back, now that you have this newfound passion for Sonics, and you start listening to older stuff and going like, man, that's, these things are like incredible. And I think, that, I think Jerry's work, particularly on Enema of the State, I think opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of things sonically. Um, so in working on this side of things, I wanted to make a, uh, a big distinction from what Blink sounds like and what Angels and Airwaves sounded like. Because I always felt that Neighborhoods and Dogs Eating Dogs, which are two of the album's Post Jerry, to me, sounded like Angels and Airwaves and Plus 44, which was Mark and Travis's side project. And didn't have that blink sound, I think, because Tom wanted to, you know, come back into the fold and be like, look at all I've learned with synths and these big soundscapes and whatnot. And 
for whatever reason, there wasn't that like click. Like none of those albums sound like the previous one, like the previous Blink mm-hmm. records. So there wasn't a line that I could draw. So I think this time around, when when Tom had Tom had started bringing songs back, it automatically already started sounding like Blink. Just the three of them writing stuff for Blink as Blink. And so I, I told Tom, I'm like, it's incredible how this just sounds like you guys, like Blink-182. It doesn't sound mm-hmm. like these other things. I think we should be super cognitive of that as we start moving into the next of the song, the rest of the songs. And don't look at a keyboard until we absolutely need something that's going to maybe support the song but it shouldn't be a, like the part of the song, like mm-hmm. the sound of, uh, you know, it should be because, you know, there were synths and stuff all over those Jerry records. And, um, but they were, they never played a part, a, a lead role. It was always like, yeah, you almost never even noticed they were there. No, like it's not to like the end of the song where things are fading out that you start hearing a synth coming in yeah. or, or if you really start to listen, you start hearing like in a, breakdown there's this i mean you hear piano for sure yeah um but as far as like synths go like pads and whatnot like they never played a massive role and so i think i tried to keep to that as much as humanly possible um we also recorded all of the guitars with a fractal axe effects on this record interesting and that's something that we had been doing since the uh, previous Angels and Airwaves record. And I, we did that more so as a writing tool because Tom would constantly be changing stuff. So I would be setting up amps and getting these awesome tones and then walk in the next day and he's like, oh, I completely rewrote the chorus, so these are the chords. And I'm just like, but... These guitars sounded so, and it was like, I, you'll get them again. It's fine. So <laughs> after about a few months of that in Angels and Airwaves, and we started using stuff like Amplitude or Guitar Rig to at least just songwrite. And we'd always have a great DI signal, and then I would reamp stuff in the end. Um, but when it came time to start uh, touring with Angels again in like 2019, and the topic of guitar rigs came up. I said, why not do an XFX? And at that point, Elon had, you know, Nine Inch Nails had been using Kempers and XFX. And actually, Trent was using guitar rig on the first tours Elon was a part <laughs> of. Would, everything would be going through a Mac. Um, but um, I'm like, a lot of people are out there doing it and they sound great. And I'm like, not only that, but they sound the same every single night. There's no phase issues. There's no, you know, mic weirdness. If a pedal goes wonky, like it's going to sound great. And we started using it in the studio and I was like, I don't think we have a reason to have to go, you know, get in a studio and get a bunch of amps out and spend time getting tones. I mean, this thing's amazing. Um, so within that, 
I had done a whole slew of things with Angels and Airwaves on the Axe Effects. So when it came time to the Blink record, I took a very Jerry Finn approach to how I would do the guitars for the Blink record in terms of, I, I know that Jerry always had three amp rigs. He'd have a, like a Marshall, a Mesa, and a, a Fender Twin Reverb. That was clean always. So the one thing I couldn't do with the XFX was do three amps. I could only do two. But I always figured if I need to blend in a clean, completely clean amp, I can just always do that after the fact. And I never really had to do that, except for maybe once on the entire <laughs> record. Um, but other than that, I did have those, that mindset of how... how Jerry would have done things. And you know, I've, I heard stories from Tom in terms of they spent an entire day shooting out guitar cables to see which was the best <laughs> sounding guitar cable. And like, that's something that Jerry would do. And Jerry would knew all of his serial numbers for all of his gear, like wow. by heart. And they would string guitars after every part so if you, d- you did an entire <laughs> rhythm track for a song that guitar i was like restring it wow you know and all these things now we didn't do any of that because we're lazy and <laughs> and and hopefully tom learned what worked best back then and could do it and now right no no he didn't and nor did he care <laughs> he said it was the most aggravating day of my life like i sat there in the <laughs> studio and did and nothing and they're all sitting there listening to these tracks that I can't even decipher (laughs) like what the sonic difference was, but for whatever reason they knew. And so I, you know, I thought that that was like super cool, but uh, yeah, I did have that in mind in terms of the tones and in terms of the songwriting. Cause on, on my side of things and mind you, I told you there are, there were many players in this record, you know, other engineers or other people that were brought in that were friends of the band that, you know, added, added stuff or whatnot. And, but on my side of the spectrum, I was always wanted this album to be what would have been the album right after self-titled. Yeah. Had the band never broken up and done the other endeavors. And I would say that every so often to the point where I think it kind of like got in the back of Tom's mind as well. Yeah. Oh, I think, I think you nailed it, man. Like when I, when I listen to this record to me, I kind of think of it like it's like the Taylor Swift eras tour, but of blink records, you know, where it's like you hear all the influences from all the previous records and there's like, Every song seems to have like a little bit of inspiration from a previous record. At least, at least yeah. that's the way I hear it. Um, and I think that like tonally, you're, you you crush the guitar tones. Like it, it's a it's a typical Tom DeLonge sound. It's like what you expect. Um, and that's yeah. one of the elements of the record that I was I was curious to learn a little bit more. Like obviously, you said you were using the the Axe Effects. Um, you know, like what I, what I really love about the guitar tones is that. On the surface, they just sound so big and full and massive. But then you kind of like pay a little bit more attention to them and you, you realize like they're super detailed. Like you can hear every single note. And, and, and you know, I think 
It's funny because you said you didn't really have to rely on a clean amp for for this, but I feel like I hear that clean that clean tone out of it. So I'm curious yeah. to know, like, as far as like the, blending those sounds and and getting the sound of this record, um, you know, aside from using the, the the axe effects, like, how did you go about deciding, like, okay, this one's going to be the dirty sound, this one's going to be a cleaner, or or was that the how you thought of it? What I primarily did, I know that Tom's always liked to hear the bigness of the distortion, but he also likes to hear the clarity of the note. Mm-hmm. And that's been a big, big thing that's been cemented in my head when, when it comes time to do the guitar tones and whatnot. So primarily the rhythm guitars would be something with a hum would be two different guitars with humbuckers at the beginning of the recording process. It was mainly his Gibson three, three, threes. He had like six of them and then they're all pretty much the same guitar, but different colors. (laughs) So it was one of those. And then usually a, um, he has an Explorer or a Gibson SG or something else. Anything that had humbuckers really to me is usually the rhythm guitar thing. And then as far as what the riff or octave part or the rest of the, or the song needed, we then kind of choose from a wide array of guitars that he has, you know, whether it was a Les Paul Jr., uh, a Strat, a Telecaster. He's got a Gretsch. Um, what are they called? Falcon. He has. I'd actually gotten a Jaguar from, not a Jaguar, a Jazzmaster from Fender that they sent us, and we had a lot of like tonal abilities because end of the day, the guitar does play a big of part of the tone. It's not just plugging and play. I mean you're probably not going to have a massive distinction from humbucker to humbucker to humbucker with a distorted sound, but definitely with like lead parts and um, octaves and whatnot, you will have that distinction, especially whether big distinction, obviously between single coil pickup and a humbucker. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, we just kind of see what would work and we'd kind of, play it in the track and if for whatever reason that guitar did, wasn't sounding right then it's like all right go get a different guitar let's try that one and then it'd be like oh all right that's it that's that's the sound that we're going for and then in terms of the amps inside like most of the rhythms were um usually like a semi distorted like plexi style amp and then the second amp would be something else that was more distorted. So something that was more like a Soldano or a Mesa, Bogner, um, things within that world. And depending on parts, it was cool to just be able to quickly audition an amp and be like, all right, cool, that works, and go. And then it would go out of the axe effects and then go into the um Tom has a manly stereo pultec 
Mm-hmm. EQ, which was Jerry Finn's like go-to move with guitars. Is the final EQ for the guitar was that Manly Pultec, and it was usually the one K, the one and a half K, or the two K, which the regular Pultecs start at three. Mm-hmm. So, but you, you know that wide broadband curve at that one K or one and a half just brings the guitar out and brings out the detail in the top half of the guitar that I think maybe I think contributes to being able to hear that detail. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Cause I always just figured that it was, cause I, I knew that with Jerry, he, he did love to use like that, that twin reverb and, and have that clean sound in there. So mm-hmm. I always just assumed that it was just like, that was the thing that was like a little, like slightly louder in the mix. So you would get that clarity, but um, you know, I guess, I guess it's that Poltec, Poltec and, and that maybe that, that slightly distorted guitar that does all the, tr- all the magic, right? Yeah, it, a lot. A lot of a lot of it is, is that that blending of the semi distorted, where you're getting a lot of the note, you're hearing the clarity of the strings, and then you just start bringing up the distorted amp that's giving you the body and the girth and that the low end really until it starts stepping on the toes of the of of the note. And then you start kind of backing it down. Yeah. I, and I think having that in the back of your mind all the time lends, lends to getting detailed tones. Yeah. And hey, listen, if you record something and it's too clean, then fuck it, you ramp it. Of course, <laughs> that's, <yeah. laughs> that's, the, that's the positive part of doing things how, how we did it is that I could always reamp it. So I'm always taking DIs of every single guitar. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things. Worst case scenario, you can always change it later. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Like, especially if you guys, from the, from the sounds of it, there was a lot of reworking of the songs and all that stuff too. So like having it all digital kind of gave you a lot of, a lot more flexibility. You didn't have to keep recalling all your amp settings and doing it that way. Right. Yeah, and also because the sessions would change so quickly because everyone's working on the same tracks in their own spots. And while I might have, like, you know, session number 10 of a particular song, Travis might already be on 15, Hmm. which means drum parts may have changed, arrangement may have changed. So being able to go back and forth and maybe now I have to edit the guitar a little bit differently to fit the, um, the new drum pattern. Mm-hmm. So having that DI save, save me a lot of having Tom redo stuff. Yeah. If it wasn't completely necessary, you know, if it was like, oh, the tempo of the song changed or who knows. Um, because nobody likes to do that. Nobody likes to redo <laughs> things, especially when they're so pumped on stuff. So yeah. I'm a okay with redoing things if need be, and if something just really had to get redone, then you'd just redo it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I was also curious about the the dynamic of like working with everyone in a different studio, you know, and like 
whenever and when everyone's in the same room, you can hear how all the pieces are coming together and how all the tones are coming together and that kind of thing. But when you're working all separately, I imagine that there would always there would probably be some disconnect here and there, and you know there'd be adjusting accordingly, right? There definitely was, um, but not a ton. I would say that most of the songs that were started in LA with the three of them, once it came to me, it was a pretty good representation of what the song um, ended up turning out as. Mm. Unless it was a song that was like changed a million times, which I honestly can say that of all the songs, there were maybe two where there were changing things constantly on it. Anything that started down in San Diego, I already kind of had a grasp on what I wanted in it. And sometimes it would change. Sometimes it wouldn't change a bit. Um, and, you know, it, we were very cognizant of, okay, well, let's leave the second verse open. That'll be Mark's verse or, you know, Mark's going to do the harmonies on this or so th- there was a good camaraderie in terms of sending stuff back and forth. And if somebody didn't like something, then they offered up an opinion or we'd go and change something. And it was a group process, a hundred percent, which was very different than how things had been because the process up until then with Tom and I working is that at the end of the day, Tom had, all the veto power in the world. Like he, the final decision was his in this situation. It was not his final say, you know, Mm -hmm. it was put stuff there. The best idea wins. If somebody has a better idea, great. If they have an idea and, you know, two of the three didn't like it, then, you know, work on it until we figure out what the right, move was and usually those things presented themselves pretty clearly um so it was good um the biggest situation more of anything was session management yeah i was gonna ask about that i figured that would have been a bit of a nightmare yeah it it got to the point where i was like hey if we're gonna use an ssl eq we just choose one (laughs) like but what ended up happening was that at Travis's studio which is where everything originated like they have their template up and they don't really go in and change it too often so the plugins that are there are the plugins that are there so I only had to like buy like a few plugins that I didn't have Um, but then they also work super, super, super fast at Travis's studio. So a lot of times engineers don't have like time to be naming stuff. Interesting. So once I, I got the session, I'm like a organizer. The rest of my life is not organized. My sessions <laughs> are organized, <laughs> like color coded. Like I like everything to be in caps. Um, I like seeing things in a certain way. My master, my master fader is always at the bottom. 
theirs is always at the top. Interesting. You know, and then, <laughs> and then um, I started just getting into the folders a lot when once Pro Tools started bringing them out. And they hadn't really started on that stuff, but then they started seeing how they were being used. So they started using them. And <laughs> so I don't know. But you also have like three engineers kind of like usually being the only engineer on the project going like, let's do things my way or of course, you know, but, and everyone's always trying to like tell each other why their way is better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but end of the day, it's just a matter of keeping, being able to keep track of things. Yeah. It's almost like you guys all needed to like, all the engineers needed to get together and be like, let's come up with a standard operating procedure for like how we're going to like make our session. Let's make it all the same. But I guess that wouldn't have worked out just because of like the, the way you guys all work with your respective musician. Right. Yeah. But you know, in the end we got whittled down to, you know, two main engineers, which was me and Kevin Thrasher, who's a rad, rad guy. Like him and I got along super well we're always like communicating and he took so much of my annoying gear talk. <laughs> um, I don't know if he took it in because he wasn't even paying attention, but he never, he would, he'd always be like, Oh yeah, that's rad. Yeah, totally. So I kind of felt like we had this like, a good a good connection and things started working out right. But then there'd be an odd moment where Kevin was out doing like another session and somebody else would come in engineer, you know, a bit and then it was different. And I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> but by that time it was like it is what it is. Let's yeah. Just, let's just record the parts, get get the stuff there. We're not going to be mixing these songs, so yeah, let's just get things sounding great and as tight as can be. Why do you think it was that you guys decided to like kind of record things at separate studios? Was it just a, co- a convenience thing or like scheduling thing? Or well, Tom lives in San Diego, yeah, and Mark and Travis live in LA, and Tom loves his house. It's a very nice house. And, you know, he's got his, his wife and he's got his family down there. And so, and the rest of the guys have their respective lives up in LA. So it was just one of those things where it made sense. Yeah. But whereas on past records, they had done the whole everyone in their own studio thing. They did get together um, every other week for about two, three days, wrote songs, worked on some other songs. And so there was that writing together thing that I think with a band like that is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was just a matter of convenience for, for everybody. And Travis lives in his studio when he's not on the road doing something. I mean, he's constantly there doing a bajillion other things, whether it's, <laughs> somebody else's record or drums for somebody or I think during the course of making the blink record he was doing a bunch of other records at the same time no that makes sense that makes sense if everyone just to 
make the process move along faster, I guess, with everyone yeah. around thing. And, and, and also that, that comfort of like, you know, you got this band coming back together. Let's not ruffle any feathers by like keeping everyone separate and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, it's kind of getting the best of both worlds, I guess. Yeah, it was, um, they wanted to make this record and they were very cognizant of the fact that I think at that point that the three of them are the reason why Blink is Blink. It's not one person, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you take one cog out of the machine and that machine is no longer the machine it was. Like there are three cogs that make up this collective beast of a band that's honestly bigger than the three of them. It's true. You know? Yeah. It, it's, they've been a staple in so many people's lives already for over 20 years. And people have literally gone from their parents going to their, to blink shows to now maybe even having kids. Like you might have three generations of blink fans which is crazy. That's wild. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, like my daughters love Blink. It gets to the point where they were listening to the record as we were making it. And I couldn't even tell my daughter that it was Blink for until it was announced because I didn't want her saying something to a Some teacher or, or yeah. something. Yeah, just, I don't know. That's that's the last place that um <laughs> you'd want the secret to come out of is yeah. a seven or eight year old kids um, elementary school yeah <laughs> but but she'd be like oh is this Angels and Airways I'm like I'm like yeah it's some music Tom's working on she's like well I really like that song and you know oddly all the all the songs that she ended up liking wound up on the record and the songs that she didn't like did not wind up on the record interesting. Sounds like you so, got a producer in the family, man. Yeah, that or an A&R um, yeah. person. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, dude, this is like, I've really enjoyed learning about this this album and everything that went into it. And I'm sure I could talk to you forever about it. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to hop on here today and, and chat about this. And I think you guys crushed the record, man. I'm a big fan of it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that like you nailed all the tones. The songwriting on it is great. And um yeah, man, just like kudos for, for a great job done. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, yeah, we can, uh, we can wrap it up there. So what, so what, you don't want any tips on how to master your mechs from me? Hey, if you want, you want, you want to, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, like I, I was very curious about the, um, you know, I was very curious about the, the guitar tone stuff. Cause I, that's something that like, I've always just admired about, uh, Tom sound is like, you know, what went into it. And, uh, so it's cool to hear that you, you guys, you were doing the digital thing. Um, yeah. And, and believe me, it, it's like, I'll, I'll go and I'll lurk on message boards and stuff just to kind of see what people are talking about. And, People are like, oh, they're using Axe effects. Like, guitar tones aren't going to be good. And I'm just like, just wait, just wait. <laughs> and it gets to the point where it's like, you would not know. Yeah. Is it all just like, uh, like was it all like just double tracked? Is that, is that your typical approach with that? Or were you guys layering a lot? With of- rhythm guitars, I usually double track. And, you know, maybe I'll have a center guitar yeah. um, doing something if, if it needs that extra level of things as far as like riffs i 
hardly ever double track yeah. riffs. Octaves, maybe. It depends if it's more of a supporting part or an actual line. If it's an actual like melodic line, then it's up the middle and mm-hmm. you know taking up the space it needs to take. If it's more of a supporting, just to kind of give a different color to the chord. Then and th- then I'll double track them and kind of blend them into the the rhythm guitars. Cool. Yeah, I, I kind of yeah. figured that was that was the case with the with the guitar tones, but yeah, like I said, man, they they sound awesome. It's funny you were mentioning like how you'll like occasionally look at like you know what people are saying about the record or whatever. I, I don't know if you can confirm nor deny this, but there's there seems to be this big thing on Reddit right now where everyone's convinced that there was new mixes of the track put uh, of the album put up on like Spotify or anything like that. Is there any truth to that? I have not found out like there, but to my ear, I think there's been some interchange of songs here and there. Okay. To my ear. And I think it's in the drum level here and there. Yeah, that seemed to be the thing that most people were calling out. So, yeah, I wasn't sure. I, you know, I, th- I think it's always interesting when uh, artists do that and kind of learning more about why. But, yeah. Why? Because, honestly, I think a lot of people these days have so much information where they can see what people are liking about the record or disliking about the record. And if it's something that they think that, hey, we can fix this low key fair they'll they'll do it why not like yeah. it the label will pay for it it's the biggest rock band out there right now yeah you have a number one record why not make it more friendly to people's ears you know <laughs> exactly and and for i think most mixers these days the amount of stems that they have because of the the whole atmos side of things to go back in there and you know, do a the same mix, but bring it down, bring the drums down a dB. It's completely doable. I'm yeah. I'm waiting for the day where people can just have mix the stems on <laughs> on like Spotify. And if you want to hear more vocal, here you can bump it up a dB. If you want to hear more of this, bump it up. Just be go fun. for it. Because be, that end would be of the such day, an interesting platform to have. I I think it would I I don't I don't think it would be too far away to be honest. You yeah, know, I would, dude, and, I would and, love and, that. Yeah, I think there's so many times where people would be like, ever since Aaron's been doing the Angels and Airwaves stuff, like I can't hear the vocals that well, and it's just like, well, there's on songs that I mix. You can blame me all you want, absolutely. But on songs that I didn't mix, like yeah, it's the same guy <laughs> that mixed the other two records. Like I don't understand where 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 it's coming from. And then a, a lot of the time, people would be hearing the Atmos mixes through stereo, which are going to sound completely weird to to people. And I didn't even know that I had like the Atmos mixes playing on Apple Music when I was listening to stuff in my car sometimes Mm -hmm. and it's just like, it's true. Most people don't know like the preferences that they've got on their systems. Exactly. So I'm sitting here going like, I can't hear vocals. I'm just like, well, 
what are the bass settings on the stereo you're listening to? What are you, like, I can't go and EQ your system. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, are you listening to stuff on like low quality when it's cellular or are you listening to lossless? And like, I, I, there's so many different environments for people to be hearing stuff and so many different like versions of the songs out there between the Atmos and the stereo mixes that there are times where it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then you have situations where the people who made the video used a different mix by mistake. And now it's like in this song, it's clipping like at this second, like, fix that. And it's like, I have nothing to do with that at this point. Like that's <laughs> something that needs to get fixed at, it's funny. you know, elsewhere. But yeah, I think we're, we're in a wild world and I would not be surprised if at some point in time you're able, you know, to at least have like an eight track mix of songs and people can kind of play around with them in that regard. And AI fun. is getting so good that, you're going to be able to remix these songs yourself if you want. I mean, I, I know people have been making their own like little mixes based off of the different outputs of the Atmos mixes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, like, I think I heard some of those on like Reddit or something. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's like there's that new Beatles track where it was like they separated, you know, vocals from piano, and so it's like if if that technology. It's going to become widely spread at some point soon, and like then people are going to just be able to make their own stems and and mix songs themselves, which would be so cool, it's so interesting. Ab- absolutely, I did. Were, were you actually? Did you actually hear the new mix of "Love Me Do"? The I don't song? know. So it's on the single for now and then. Okay. And it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. Weird. Like. The vocals are so clear, like the mix is like completely separate. And it's like a modern mix of their first track ever. So I think that's what the Red and Blue record are going to be, are like a lot of those songs remixed with this AI technology to be able to separate a lot of these parts that have been living on a stereo and or mono tape for a long time yeah it's so interesting it, it'll be it'll be fun to hear like how far people take some of these tracks and i'm sure you're gonna get the people that are like gonna like re-trigger ringo drums or something like that you know it'll be like it'll be so yeah. interesting and and like butcher a lot of good stuff and and but it could also make it interesting too i think giles is, martin is very respectful of what's there yeah so I don't know that there would be triggering, but they're definitely using modern tools, whether it's plugins yeah. or a multitude of outboard gear that before it's like you kind of had to pick and choose. Yeah. I, I just meant more like when people have the ability to do it themselves, when they can like split out their oh, own. Oh, yeah. I mean, right? it's then it's going to be the Wild West and you're just going to hear like the worst mixes of of songs you know <laughs> yeah it, it's it's bonkers i have like multi-tracks of like songs that like killer queen and some of these like classics and you have the multi-tracks there and they just sound so good in terms of it like the tracks were what the tracks were it yeah. wasn't like we'll fix it in the mix type of situation like what was tracked is 
what was in the mix and totally. you know other than maybe like an echo or a reverb that they used as an aux when they were mixing all the sounds are pretty much there and it was just a blend of stuff and it's yeah. like so cool to hear the commitment whereas this day and age nobody commits to anything ever yeah i know i remember i i heard the uh bohemian rhapsody multi-track and i was just mm-hmm. like holy shit like this is like the commitment that went into this and like how finished it sounds just with like the tracks being bounced down and committing to like all the vocal layers and everything it's it's incredible what i what i always ask myself is like does it sound incredible because it's what we've been hearing forever and just anything else would sound weird to us there could be some truth to that or did they just know what they were doing and they just did it yeah, that's interesting. I always think about that whenever like you hear of a band that's debating or that is going to like re-record a, a, an old record. You know, it's like yeah. I'm gonna like it. I just you know, I, like I've heard the same songs like thirty years, you know, this way. Like I think anything else would just be jarring to me. You know, I could definitely see where there could be a lot of magic and vibe lost with remixing a lot of these older songs. I think it's the nostalgia. It's like you have nostalgia associated with these songs and like they were a part of your life in so many different elements or so, so many different ways. And so then you have like this new, if you have like a new version of it, it it's, it's not the same song. It's not the same vibe, you know? Yeah. I, I always see it like, I think if you're able to maximize what was already there, then it's going to be fine. If you're going to go in there and start changing things dramatically, I think that's where you start getting into weird territory, but fair. You yeah. know. <laughs> you, you never know. It's like there'll be a record out there and all the engineer does is flip the phase on the snare drum and it's like now it sounds like a completely different kit because for whatever reason they just chose a different phase correlation where yeah. you know that may, now the snare drum sounds big as opposed to sounding like you know snare bottom or whatever yeah super interesting stuff man but yeah it's super subjective it's probably you know it's a art form and i don't know I, th- I think my goal usually is just to like keep the keep the meaning of the song and the intention of the song for what the artist was envisioning, not go in there and put your, your sound on there. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And and that's why, you know, like, again, with this Blink record, I think that, you know, it, it sounds like Blink and it doesn't sound like another producer was working on it, you know? And, and yeah. I think that that's, I think that's a good thing, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that the vision or at least, at least the vision that I think the fans had of what this record could have been, that that was executed on, and and you guys achieved it. So, um, yeah, man, yeah, I, great job. Tra- tra- you know, hats off to Travis. Like he lived with that thing over and over and over. I mean, there were times where he would retrack drums after the song was mixed hmm. because just thought that the snare drum could sound better or different. 
Or should. Yeah, I heard that he would like record multiple kits throughout a song, and yeah, like it's it's so interesting to like have to. I I would imagine mixing that would be a a fun challenge. No, (laughs) (laughs) maybe fun's not the right word. (laughs) No, I mean, as as the record was was going, there'd be like a fill that was punched in, but that fill that was punched in was punched in a month later on a different kit with, you know, mics moving everywhere. So on that one fill, the phase relationship between like the snare and the overheads is completely different to the point where it was like out of phase. (laughs) So it's like, I, I don't know if that played into it subjectively or, you know, it was one of those things where drums could have been redone at any point. And nobody would have known. Interesting. Except except for Travis. Mm-hmm. And but he's you know, he had a he had a vision of what he wanted the drums to sound like and um that's you know, he concentrated on that and tried to nail it and he's his drum tech Daniel's a great drum tech and is very knowledgeable and always brings fun toys and snares and drums into the into the studio and so they're always like you know swapping stuff out and doing that kind of thing that's fun makes for makes for interesting sounds and and uh obviously like you know you spend the time it's kind of like it's kind of reminds me of what you were talking about with like jerry and how they would spend a day like working on cables and stuff it's like you know you spend the time getting the right drum sound and and you play with all the different sounds until you get it right you know meet meet the vision for it right yeah i you know and usually drums are the first thing traditionally that get cut in a record you know these were getting cut all over the place like (laughs) whenever the song was never done until it was absolutely mastered (laughs) yeah was there ever like um were you guys ever like programming drums at all? Like to like kind of like makeshift some parts or was it always just like everyone just kind of did their thing? Yeah, we would knowing that they would get, um, Travis would, would do his thing. But like if, if Tom and I, if Tom wanted to write something and, and, um, send an idea over, we would put drums on it. And obviously I would have Travis in mind and think like, Hmm, what would Travis do? <laughs> How do you even program that way? Like, he's just such a beast, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have your thoughts as to what he might do. And nine times out of ten, you're wrong. But at least it sounded like it could have been. Yeah. Or you'd leave, put something in there that's like super basic, super simple. So that it, it's, you know, it's not boxing him in. To any sort of groove, unless it was like an intentional groove, which I don't think on our end we ever really, you know, we're gonna do that. Yeah, that's cool, man. Dude, this this has been so fascinating to uh, to hear about all the stuff that went into it, and like I said, it's a killer record, dude. So great job, thank on you. It. Yeah, dude. I, yeah. I, Thank you. Thank you for, for taking the time to do this. Like, no worries. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, H- happy to come back whenever, whenever you need somebody. 
So that was my interview with Aaron Rubin. And wow, that was like a lot of fun. I loved learning more about that process that went into the latest Blink record. And I thought it was cool to learn more about, you know, that Tom DeLong signature guitar sound that has really defined the sound of the pop punk genre. So many people want to get that sound uh, that he's got. And so to have someone who's been on the inside working with Tom and who is very intimately familiar with those guitar tones and how to get them, I thought it was cool to learn more about, you know, how to get those in and the different amps that they blend together and all that stuff that goes into it. So I really enjoyed learning about that. And I also thought it was really cool that early in the episode, we talked about the idea of proving your value and how you know, he had made that suggestion to his brother about remixing some songs to just kind of show what he could bring to that band. And as a result of that, not only did his brother solidify his role in in the band, but also Aaron made himself known throughout the process by putting his best foot forward and creating that opportunity. So I thought that that was really cool to, to hear. And you can tell that like Aaron is just the kind of guy who he creates opportunities, he finds opportunities, and when those opportunities come up, he crushes it. And because of that, that's why he's been able to see a massive growth in his career and so quickly as well. So yeah, I just thought that was a really fun episode. I really enjoyed learning more about it. And uh, he's just such a chill dude. So I really appreciate his time. So with that said, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're the type of person who's working on music of your own and you're not sure what to do in order to get it sounding at a professional level, if you feel like your mixes just always end up sounding like demos and you're not quite sure what steps to take, well, I would love to help you out with that. Inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, I work one-on-one with my students to help make sure that the vision that they have for their project actually comes to life and that you're producing music that you're ultimately proud of and excited to share with the world. In this program, you'll get one-on-one personalized help and feedback on your tracks. So as you're working on your mixes, send them in for review, get feedback, get steps on what to do to take that mix to the next level, and then send it back and we'll go back and forth until your mix is finally done and you're ultimately super happy about it. Plus, in this program, you also get access to a giant library of masterclasses designed to help make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music easier. And you get access to mastering and a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you're interested in getting help with your productions, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. And on that website, you'll find all the details about the program. And then I would love to hop on a call with you. And I'd love to learn more about the projects that you're working on, learn more about your process, and to see if I can help you out. I only accept people in this program who I truly believe I can help out. And if that is you, then I would love to work with you to get your mixes to that next level, get you super excited about your songs, and feel confident in your process as well. So once again, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude to get all the info there. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. 